I thought about just leaping on the stage. I, I, I thought about that, but uh, if you fail, you know, that's not going to be a terrific opening. Well, good morning, everybody. How you all doing? Sounds like I'm from the South or something, doesn't it? Uh, I, I have known Ali for a while and have enjoyed uh, very much our friendship and have been uh, a longtime friend of Dave Che. Uh, you may remember that name, <laughs> I think. In fact, we recently had uh, coffee together and I kind of caught up with him and I appreciated that. Um, big fan of, of him and his ministry and have uh, was, was with you once at uh, GRX, but it was a different venue. In fact, finding you right now is a great challenge. You know, are, you're, you're here. Are you here for a while or is this just this week? You're here. Okay, terrific. Stay here for a while, will you, so I know where you are. Good. And uh, J2M, Journey to Mosaic, I don't know how much you know about that, but it's uh, uh, an incredible experience, a very intensive four-day journey from uh, the Bay Area down to Los Angeles via the, the Central Valley and the experience of, of various uh, ethnic groups and their history in uh, California and America and uh, some of the really tough parts of that history. And uh, there are some real uh, tense moments because we're kind of facing some of our fears, some of our issues. Uh, some of them are you know, my issues, depending on my background. Some of them are the other people in the group. And we kind of go at it and have a very candid conversation, which we're not used to having. And we're doing it with uh, a clear sense of Christ being in our midst. So the folks who are going uh, this weekend, who have been part of that, I'm sure will come back with uh, some very interesting observations. I was on the very first one, it was about eight years ago, I think, and uh, we were kind of pioneering the concept, and I'm glad it's continuing to go. Several times a year, from different covenant churches, folks come together from various backgrounds, and it is uh, free for all, and we're trusting the Spirit to teach us what we need to learn. So I'm glad they're having that experience. I know that you're in the middle of a series right now, and that's always a challenge for a guest speaker to drop into the middle of the series, so I'm hoping that I can hit the ground running with you. Um, we're in Acts chapter 11. If you have a Bible, a New Testament, you can look at that. I think it's also reprinted for you in, in, uh, in, the, in the bulletin this morning. And I'm very pleased to be joining you on this journey through uh, the book of Acts. Sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. Sometimes called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Tell me which one is the right answer. Which is it? The Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit? My answer is yes. Um, God, obviously, the sovereign God is orchestrating something that is incredibly powerful, um, unexpected, even shocking, and yet it requires, it demands of us a response and a participation. And that's exactly what's happening in, in the book of Acts. Notice it's not called the intentions of the disciples, of the apostles, the ideas of the apostles, the thoughts of the apostles. There's a bias toward action. There is movement here. There's something being created. There is uh, distance being covered. There is uh, a bias toward action, which I think, of course, characterizes all of Scripture, characterizes the way that God acts with us so that we can be, so that we can act but in chapter 11, if you want to turn to that, beginning with verse 19. And again, continuing in the flow of what you've been looking at now for, uh, I assume, several weeks. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. 
Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This is a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Antioch. It's really a tale of two churches, the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, and the church in Antioch, um, a new outpost of this new faith. Not even sure what to call it. In fact, for the very first time, uh, those believers are called Christians, Christianos in the original language in Antioch. I think a bit of a slur was implied the first time the term was used. Um, and yet they were obviously a distinctive group. They were some kind of new force to be reckoned with and uh, people have a hard time labeling something that's new. But that was their name. It wasn't the disciples' name for themselves. They tended to use words like brothers and sisters and saints and uh, um, you know, fellow ministers in this, uh, in this adventure called, called the Gospel. Jerusalem and Antioch. Antioch is mentioned the name, the city is named five times in this passage. There's something new going on. Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And uh, what has happened is there's been an outbreak of persecution. And it's connected with the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen gave that uh, great speech back in uh, Acts chapter 6-7. And uh, there was a reaction to that. A strong reaction to that and there was a confrontation now happening and it was no longer acceptable to be part of this sect at least uh, from the point of view of the authorities and uh, so there was a scattering and there were lots of folks who left they were refugees now and they went north this is a transitional moment in the history of the church and as often is the case not only corporately as a church, but also individually in our own lives. The transition, the change, is not something we choose. It's forced upon us. Now we have some choices along the way once we begin to respond or even react to what's happening around us circumstantially. The church already knew, they always knew that they were not going to stay in Jerusalem. But you know, it's so comfortable in Jerusalem. I mean, it's our homeland. I mean, this is our place. I mean, this is where our tribe lives. And, and we're supported by, by the backgrounds and, and the traditions that we're used to. And we know we're supposed to go around about into Judea. Judea would be similar kinds of people, just a little bit, you know, extended from where we are. Into Samaria, which is also close by, but those folks are very different in Samaria. That's the hood. And then there's the uttermost parts of the earth, and that starts to sound a little bit dangerous, a little bit scary. So ultimately, this is to be a worldwide phenomenon 
This gospel is supposed to make tracks. We're supposed to get mobile. We're supposed to go somewhere with this. But they were sitting in Jerusalem waiting and waiting and waiting. And after a while, we kind of forget what we're waiting for because it really is pretty, pretty comfortable. And apparently that was the case. The church was thriving. The church was successful. The church was um, winning the favor of folks around at least for a period of time. And now we move into this shift. It is a seismic shift. It is a geographic shift. The, uh, the church is going to, a lot of folks who are part of the church are going to move elsewhere. They're going to, they're going to run away. They're going to run for their lives. Uh, they're going to be on the run for a while, and some of them permanently. It's geographic. It's demographic. It's always been us. It's always been our tribe. It's always been the Jews. Oh yes, there's an occasional Gentile, uh, uh, a God-fearer, somebody who's attracted to the, to the Judeo-Christian, not yet called Christian, tradition and uh, ethical monotheism. And so there are folks around and we learn to tolerate them. But uh, now there's going to be a dramatic, one might even say radical, certainly from their point of view, radical demographic shift. And not only the locusts, from Jerusalem to Antioch is going to change, but also the focus in terms of who is responding and who is becoming a part of this community. It's a strategic change and ultimately it's a historic change. It's a sea change. It's as big a change as any change that's ever happened in the history of the world, one might add. In fact, I think we're right now, it's not um, uh, inaccurate to say that we're at a pivotal point now in the history of the church. What happens right now? It happened with Peter. You talked about him last week, right? Peter and Cornelius. Was that going on last week? Anybody here last week? Anybody awake <laughs> during, the, during the message last week? Um, Peter had to have a second conversion. He'd already been won to Christ and had become a follower and a lifelong follower and it was now irreversible but uh, he hadn't quite gotten the gospel, that this gospel was a universal appeal. He hadn't gotten that, and so God had to give him a special experience with a guy named Cornelius, a Roman, and uh, a Gentile. And uh, Gentiles, of course, were unclean and not really eligible to enter in, at least not as first-class citizens in this new kingdom. And so Peter's mind, Peter's attitude, his mindset had to be changed. And it was in that encounter with, uh, with Cornelius. And others heard about that. And the beginning of this chapter, chapter, uh, um, chapter 11, we see you know, Peter retelling the story again. Because it's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. Are you sure, Peter? Did this really happen? What are the implications of this? They're staggering. In terms of now how we have to open up our hearts and think in terms of a worldwide phenomenon... Folks streaming into the... Is that really going to happen? And I think with Peter and Cornelius, there was a kind of... If you go at the end of uh, chapter 10, if you happen to have your Bibles, you'll see that when Peter finishes telling the story, they did praise God. So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. That's uh, the end of uh, verse 18, chapter 11. Okay? It's kind of a concession at this point. I mean, it's a good thing. It's a great testimony. We love testimonies about people who come from exotic places and come from horrible backgrounds. But we don't yet think of it as the rule, as a real opportunity to take a new initiative, to really open it up to all sorts of people. A trickle, maybe, 
but an onslaught? A whole bunch of folks showing up? What would we do with them? How would we absorb them? It's not yet a policy of the church. It isn't yet the instinct of the church to think of itself in terms of this, can I use the word, mosaic. To think of itself in terms of this international, inter-tribal, inter-ethnic, intercultural community as large as the heart of God. It's not yet natural for them to do that. Is it natural for us to think in those terms? Do we? Do you? Do we as a church, do we as a, an American church community, do we think that way? Does it happen like that? It isn't until you get to Acts chapter 15, which I won't sneak into because somebody else is going to cover that, you have the church gathering to kind of think more policy, to think in terms of, of a more systematic approach. Are we truly going to open our hearts up? Yes, we've made exceptions, but maybe this really isn't supposed to be just an exception. We're not supposed to be merely tolerant. Tolerance is not a Christian virtue. It's weak. It's kind of, kind of lame when you think of it. To, to tolerate. I mean, do you like being tolerated? Does that feel good? Someone says, you know, I've, I've, I've decided that I'm going to tolerate you. How are you feeling about that? And most of the times that's not said. It's just the attitude that's conveyed. And so you feel tolerated. And you know you're not wanted. You're not fully accepted. You're not embraced. You're not a part of. And the Gentiles are still in that exceptional situation. There's Cornelius, yes. He's an exceptional Gentile. It's interesting because as, uh, as this begins to expand, there are new, there, there's going to be a new crisis for the church around every corner as the openness that God demands begins to dawn on us or on this church historically as well as on us. So if you're going to have this kind of a shift, if you're going to keep expanding, you're going to need a leader. You're going to need a champion. You're going to need a real risk taker to show the way. And fortunately, we have such people in the book of Acts. We've had Stephen already who starts to take us in that direction. We've had Peter reluctantly dragging his feet going in that direction and finally embracing, at least in this one case, Cornelius and his kin. But now we're introduced to a man named Joseph. You thought his name was Barnabas, didn't you? Well, Joseph is his name. From Acts chapter 4, that's his name. But the disciples, the other disciples, call him Barnabas. It's his nickname. It means son of encouragement. That's a pretty cool nickname when you think about it. What if you were known for that? Those are the kind of leaders that we need who are filled with encouragement. Well, how do you do that? By the way, I, I love the word even in the English before you get to the, the Greek translation of the word. But in English, to encourage someone is to put courage in them. And we need courage for the living of our lives for a lot of reasons. In Jerusalem, they needed courage both because they were getting um, um, pushback from the Jewish community that was beginning to think that this was an abandonment of true Judaism, even though they were embedded in it. They were getting pushback from their conservative brethren, 
And then, of course, they were feeling the pressures of the world around and the possibility of, of more and more encounters with Gentiles, and, and that was a little bit too much. So they needed a lot of encouragement to take these next steps and to go fearlessly into the future. And they needed someone like a Barnabas to take them there. To encourage someone, if you look at the Greek word parakaleo, it's a, it's a hybrid. You know, you know those two words because they come over into the English. Para is like you know paramedical and paralegal. It's someone who comes alongside. And kaleo means to call out to. So to encourage someone means to, to come alongside them and call out to them. Or let me, let me paraphrase it. It means to encourage someone, you have to find them, come alongside, and you have to find out about them. You cut across their path and you call out to them. It's notoriously difficult in the, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, to translate this word parakaleo because it has such an elastic meaning. You can't translate it until you know the context. If someone is um, in a rebellious place, parakaleo, encouragement, means a bit of a confrontation, a bit of exhortation. It can be very, very strong. And so sometimes it's translated that way when that's what's required. But sometimes when someone's just hurting and they're in trouble, it requires something very soft and something very comforting. Encouragement is all of that. So you don't know how to deliver encouragement until you're with someone, until you find them and find out about them. And that's who Barnabas is. That's the kind of leadership we need, we need now. We don't just need, leader, need leaders who can perform and impress us up front because they have special talent or they have charisma. Those things are, are helpful. They're, they're good, possibly even in the way sometimes because we forget as leaders what we are called to do is to listen to other people and show interest in them because ultimately the goal isn't to impress anybody. It's to empower folks. It's to call them out. It's to find out what God has put into them. It's to find out something about their calling and their capacity, and their potential. And, and to say things to them, to encourage them in ways they don't even know the truth about themselves. They're, they don't even understand their own potential. And so what leaders do is they raise up others. They draw out the capacity, the abilities, the gifts, the treasure that they see in that person because God gives them insight into doing that. And so a leader makes it about everybody else. That's who Barnabas is. That's why you don't come in to church and you don't read the Bible and you don't end up answering questions like who's the greatest guy in the Bible, you don't think of Barnabas. He's sort of a sidekick, maybe even an afterthought. We don't even know his real name, Joseph. He's got a great background, by the way. He's a Levite, so he's got that you know, kind of deep background embedded in the Jewish faith and in the, in, the, in the history of Israel, but he's from Cyprus, so he has some multicultural experience. He hasn't spent the whole time in the, in the ghetto he hasn't spent the whole time inside you know, one particular area. He's rubbed shoulders with other pagans, with, with Gentiles. And so he has, I call it, solid at the core, soft around the edges. He's strong in terms of what is absolutely essential, but he's very, very flexible in terms of his, his relationships with others. And you can see that as Barnabas now begins to play a very unique role. He's called by the church in Jerusalem to go find out what's happening in Antioch. Why did they choose Barnabas? They trust him. He's a man of integrity. They don't doubt where he's coming from. 
And he's a man who greatly cares. And he cares about other people. And he'll care about strangers that he meets. Boy, I read this and I feel so challenged. Am I that kind of person? Do people think of me as an encourager? Or am I so self-focused, you know, how am I doing? How you all think I'm doing? Leaders aren't, leaders biblically defined are not like that are always thinking about how to help, how to serve, how to empower, how to strengthen, how to bless other people. And that's true leadership. Of course, that's what Jesus did. Remember the time when he took his disciples aside? They'd been with him for a while, and he says, you know what? You guys are going to do greater things than I have done. That's kind of hard to believe. You, you, you kind of wince at that one. I mean, greater things? Jesus is about building greatness into his disciples. And they're going to take his spirit and they're going to conquer the world with his spirit by the power of his love. Jesus is about elevating. That's why he spent so much time with a few. Sometimes it seems like he's wasting his time, but he is putting courage into them. He's putting conviction into them. And then he's drawing out of them what they didn't even know they had. He sends them out to represent we have a tale of two cities here, Jerusalem and Antioch. One church is hunkered down. It's maintaining. It's not moving. The claim to fame of the Jerusalem church is, what's our seating capacity? In Antioch, it's about, what's your sending capacity? Seating capacity versus sending capacity. They're on the move. And it takes... It takes a Barnabas kind of person, man or woman, who sees their role in that way, master encourager, as the one who becomes the catalyst for what happens in the church. So, this kind of encouragement isn't only what we long for as believers. It's what the world longs for. Someone who will come alongside of us, who will walk with us, who will share our concerns. And what the, the amazing thing is, if you do that, people will actually get in touch with God and ultimately get, give God the credit for what you have given to them. You're doing it in His name. They may not know that, but they feel it. I want, to watch, I want you to watch a video. Let's take a few minutes and watch this video because this is all about that instinct that longs for someone to notice and to care and ultimately to build me up. And again, this is a secular scene, but it's just filled with spiritual meaning. I think it's very rich, so let's take a look. This song says, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you go in your life, at some point, you're going to need somebody to stand by you. Somebody to say. 
So maybe you've seen that before. I've seen it a number of times, and I just love it every time I see it. It's just something just grips me and reminds me of what the whole world is looking for. And someone like Barnabas fills that role. He comes and stands by the church in Jerusalem. He's already there. In Antioch, people he's, he's not even met. They're strangers to him. And then ultimately, of course, his relationship with a guy named Saul, who is such a loser, who is an enemy of the church, who has no potential, who's a threat, someone you want to stay far away from. And Barnabas, almost Barnabas alone among everyone, sees what God is doing in the person of Saul, becoming Paul of Tarsus. Why do we need encouragement? Why did the church then, why do we need encouragement? We have to move from fear to faith. There's a tremendous amount of fear in the church in Jerusalem. That's why they're hunkered down. That's why they stay where they are. That's why they're cautious. That's why they're conservative. There's a lot of fear. Why is there fear? Because there's tremendous uncertainty. That's what causes this fear. And there's just enough threat around to put them on edge. And it seems like it's escalating. And yes, they have seen great things. The drama of the life of Jesus, the death, the resurrection of Jesus played out in Jerusalem and environs. They have seen that happen, and they're still afraid. And they're still careful to an extreme degree. And they won't move. They need encouragement. They need courage. And Barnabas is going to be one of those people that's going to put courage into them. They sent the right guy. I'm glad they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Can you imagine sending somebody without that spirit, who didn't care about encouraging, who was much more defensive and much more, you know, kind of, kind of self-protective? It would have scared him to death what God was doing in Antioch. This new beachhead, this new frontier, this new opportunity. And that's what, that's what Barnabas is convincing, trying to convince the church of. And that's what the church begins to discover. That's what ha what's happening in Antioch. And the people who have fled from Jerusalem to Antioch, they're afraid. That's why they've run. And now they're in Antioch, and they're, they're continuing to move north and away from any threat. But they begin to share what's inside of them. They can't help themselves. They begin to share. And what happens? Well, you wouldn't believe it. People are actually responding. People actually have needs and they begin to see how Jesus of Nazareth is the answer to their heart's desire, answer to the crisis inside of them. At first it was only to the Jews, but then they began to expand because you can't keep this to yourself. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to share it. If this is happening inside of me, if even though I'm very afraid and feeling very threatened and have lost everything, but Christ is still taking care of me, well, maybe he can do that for you. Maybe he's got something for you. And they begin to share that. And they go to this place called faith. Again, our faith has to be renewed. I once had it. I lost it. I become apathetic. Apathy often is another name for fear, by the way. I just pretend like I don't care because I don't want to get too dramatic about it. But inside of me, if you get beneath sort of my walls, you'll see that I'm actually pretty afraid. And the antidote to fear is love and being willing to trust that love. Perfect love casts out fear. 
But I've got to be reminded of that. Someone has to encourage me, and I have to see the results of what God can do in spite of this horrible situation that we're in. I was in Haiti in, in April. I was there for a week. Haiti, January 12, 2010. A terrible earthquake. Killing 50,000 people plus. We're not even sure how many perished in that earthquake. You know what happened as a result of that? I'm learning about that as I'm spending time with uh, a large group of pastors. Many of the church buildings that we mistakenly call the church were destroyed or um, um, not. They were rendered unsafe for human habitation. So the churches began to meet outside. The walls are down. People around in the neighborhoods are now hearing the church singing and praising and praying and preaching, and um, and they're drawn. We don't even think they're going to be drawn, but they're people are people are drawn when we take the gospel out of doors, make it a little more accessible, and people notice something about our spirit when we're together. And now people are coming to Christ in Haiti because the church has no place to meet except out of doors. It reminds me again of, of what was happening in Jerusalem and the scattering of the church and, and what was a terrible time and a terrible crisis. And God does His finest work in times of terrible crisis. From fear to faith. From ethnocentric to Christocentric. Because they have been completely captivated by their own tribe and very proud of the fact that they are Israelite. And yet if you go back to the very first moment, the calling of Abraham, the father of this nation. He was called so that God might bless him and his posterity and through them bless the world, bless everyone else. But Israel forgets that. We forget that because that's our legacy. That's our calling as well to go in that direction. My wife and I, we have a good friend who leads a ministry and she started it on a shoestring a couple of years ago up in uh, Sonoma County. Not exactly known for its evangelical presence, Sonoma County. Kind of a new age epicenter up there. And she felt a calling to reach out to people who were part of new age. Determined, of course, never to compromise the faith because then she, would never have, she wouldn't have anything to offer those who are looking for answers in all kinds of exotic places. And... Uh, a couple of years into it, God is doing amazing things because she has left the comfort zone where she was working in a church and has started something that the church should be doing all the time, which is reaching beyond the boundaries of where we feel comfortable, where we feel at home. And she's having constant connection and people are coming, first of all, out of curiosity. Why would you even be here? And then, yes, you're offering to pray. Please pray for me. And Joanna and her, and her crew, they take prayer very seriously. They meet people wherever they are. See, part of reaching people is meeting them just where they are. And then sharing as appropriate in response to the questions that they're asking. And again and again and again, Joanna describes these experiences that she's having. To go from this inner circle where we feel most comfortable. And for the Jews, it was, you know, the, the Jews that were living in Jerusalem. And then if you want to stretch us a little bit, the Jews of the diaspora, those who have moved elsewhere. But we're a little suspicious of them. We're not sure about them. 
But uh, we will relate to them. They, they come and visit Jerusalem every once in a while on the high holy days, and that's okay. We'll, we'll relate to them as well. But they look like us, but they really think differently. They're a little bit you know, contaminated by the outside world, but, but we relate to them. And then there are the cultured pagans like the Greeks. And, uh, you know, they have some deep thoughts, and they're a little bit more disciplined, and so we, uh, if we have to, we can relate to the Greeks, although we don't really think of them as becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what's going to happen here. We're going to go from ethnocentric to Christocentric, and it's going to be in Christ that our relationships are made. I was just reading a book called Latino in Christ. I love that because... It isn't just being in Christ. You get to be who you are and how God created you. And you come from a place, and that's important. But ultimately, you're defined by your relationship in Christ, by your identity in Christ, and now your relationships in Christ. The Apostle Paul eventually gets very radical on this notion. You go to Galatians chapter 3. You go to Colossians chapter 3. He talks about the bot gospel going out to the, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. Even to the barbarians, he says in Colossians chapter 3. Now this, this is beyond the pale. Even the Scythians, who were the worst of the worst of the barbarians, Paul has just covered all of humanity in one fell swoop. By the way, he throws in slave and free, male and female, in case you're uh, tempted to have prejudice in those areas too, and says, no, all that matters is Christ. And the fact that we are connected in Christ and that Christ has reached out to draw all of us to Him and then connect us and relate us to each other. And then the encourager, Barnabas and others, and all of us who choose to take this role, need to help us, the church, need to help us, each other, move from doubt to delight. We live with a lot of doubts about what God can do in this world. Or if, if we're not doubting God, we're doubting ourselves. I believe God can do great things, but I don't think He can do it with me. Or if I think He might be able to do something with me, He certainly can't do it with me for you. Because of the differences between us and the, uh, the tension that may be between us. And we kind of sometimes even forget what our whole calling is. As someone once said, the church exists by mission like a fire exists by burning. I mean, we can't do anything else but share what we've been given. How could we possibly keep it to ourselves? I've got a friend who's a pastor down in Santa Barbara. He was recently at a dinner in a very kind of celebrity-filled occasion. And he was interested in meeting some of these celebrities. Sitting across from him was an older gentleman um, who, was, who had no name, at least no, no name that he recognized, and uh, seemed rather dull to him when he first met the guy. And so he began talking to other people. Suddenly, in the middle of dinner, this guy across the table, in full hearing of everybody else, says, Oh, I understand you're a pastor. Well, John was outed there. He didn't really... You know, want that to be known necessarily at that moment. You know, he wasn't ready to spring that. Yes, yes, he had to confess. I, I, I am a pastor. And the guy leans across the table and says, John's a, a friend of mine. He, re, he, he recounted this to me. He said, how many souls did you save last year? You and your church. Well, John's flustered now. And he said, well, we don't really use language like that. He said, we talk about the various ministries we have and how we serve. And the guy keeps leaning across the table 80-year-old man says, why don't you talk like that? Don't you believe people are lost? 
Don't you believe people are, are really hurting and they need God? Don't you believe that people need to be rescued? Don't you believe all that? He says to the pastor, the irony of this conversation. And finally John's backed into a corner and said, yeah, yeah, we, we do. We do believe in that. And, uh, you know, God is at work among us. You know how we soften the language because we're sometimes afraid of being too direct about our ambitions. Maybe we don't have any ambitions anymore. Maybe we're just kind of cruising. Finally, the man said, well, I'm glad to hear that because I would love to invest in your church. If you could show me a plan to save souls next year, I want to invest in your church. And John thought, well, what does that mean? Do I really have to take this guy seriously? Who's speaking the word of God to me right now? From who knows what his agenda is. We don't even know if he has any faith. And finally he says, I'll tell you what. If you put together a plan and show it to me, and I don't know if the plan's right or not, so I'll just trust you. Just show me the plan. I'll give you $100,000. It doesn't happen every day. I can, I, I can guarantee you. To those of us who are in this game, which sometimes is just a game. And John said, $100,000. And he's thinking to himself, who is this guy? Well, he finds out he's a billionaire living locally under an assumed name. And John thinks, is he serious? Well, I don't know if he's serious or not, but you know what? I need to have a plan to reach people beyond our own community. And so John, and he calls me up because I do this kind of thing. I do a lot of consulting with churches. We talk about it. We begin to think about what his church is uniquely positioned to do and how it could stretch itself beyond you know, its territory. And John's starting to get excited about this. I haven't seen John this excited for, for quite a while about doing something new out there. He puts together a plan. He communicates with the guy, and the guy says, well, you know, I thought about it. Okay, John says, I, I knew this was coming. He's going to backtrack. He said, I'd like your church to match the $100,000. I want to know they have some skin in the game. I want to know that they believe in this as much as you and I believe in this. And John said, fair enough. So he goes to his congregation. He says, we're going to raise $100,000 with a plan to reach out to our larger community and to people we've never touched before. Wow. Put the plan together. Raise $160,000 above and beyond the budget for this. I'm not making this up, by the way. This is a true story. Covenant pastor, Santa Barbara. I don't want to mention his name. It's John. <laughs> I'm glad to put him on the spot. That guy did. I can put him on the spot. So he calls the guy back up and, and, and he says, uh, I want you to know we've completed the plan. We've raised $100,000. In fact, we've raised $160,000. Do you want to kick in? And John said, at that point, I didn't really care if he was going to kick in or not. We were off and running. If this guy was just a ruse to get us going, that's fine. The guy sent him a check three weeks ago, $160,000. I think God's kind of serious about this mission of his. He's the missional God. And here it is in the middle of uh, the book of Acts, and this is the pivotal moment. Was Cornelius going to be an exception? Is there going to be an occasional exotic foray somewhere to do a short-term mission trip? Or are we serious about reaching people who right now seem far away? 
If we're going to do this, if we're going to be serious, we have to do what Barnabas did. Because Barnabas went from solo to ensemble. We sometimes think of Barnabas or someone like Paul as operating alone. They never operated alone. It was always in relationship. It was always in partnership. It was always as a team reaching out. He went and found Saul. He had to convince the church earlier that Saul was worth investing in. Can you imagine that? This is the, this is the future Paul the Apostle who's writing most of the letters in the New Testament, and Barnabas has to convince the church that he's worthwhile, that he's trustworthy, that he's someone we want to get to know. How many people have we written off, or if not written off, simply ignore? Because we can't even imagine that they would be interested, or if God could do His work in them, or if they would have some capacity to reach other people. How blind and deaf and weak we are when we simply sit in Jerusalem waiting for something we know not what, forgetting that God has already called us to stretch, to reach, to connect, to do those kinds of things. From solo to ensemble. I was on the Google campus for the first time this week. My son works there. and He's been bugging me to come and I haven't had that opportunity, but I went this week. And... Uh, I'm looking at the people in the... Uh, anybody work here for Google? Okay, because I'm about to offend you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm extremely impressed with Google. Obviously, my son works there. These are people who know talent when they see it. <laughs> and my son's really doing well at Google. But I, I, I look at the, at the group, of, and it's the whole world at Google working there. And there are some people there working there, and, and everybody who works there you know, has to perform. They have to, they, they have to do something, and they have to prove themselves, or they wouldn't be working there, or they wouldn't be, wouldn't be there for long. And there are some people that I don't know that I would think really had it in them. Are they smart enough? Are they capable enough? People with disability, people who look like they're kind of living in their own world. You know, I have some judgments that I make about people. You believe that? I've been around a long time. You'd think I'd be over this. I still have judgments that I make. And I'm, I'm very sophisticated in my judgments. I, I never abuse anybody. I'm never rude. Well, well, hardly ever. But you know what? I know how to brush you off. The greatest insult you can give them is your indifference. You don't matter. I don't see any potential in you. And what they accomplish at Google for the goals they have set, absolutely incredible. And of course, last night I had to go see the movie. You know the movie? The movie? And it's all about ensemble, isn't it? It isn't about what you do by yourself. It's about Harry and Hermione and, and, and Ron. It's about walking alongside and encouraging one another. And Barnabas, son of encouragement. Yeah, his name's Joe, but his name's really Barnabas. My name's Doug. I want you to call me Barnabas. I want you to call me Barney. I want to earn that. I want to be that kind of leader. I want to help the church advance. I want folks who don't know Christ to come to know Him. What He's done for me, how could I possibly keep it to myself? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for uh, 
someone like Barnabas. I thank you that he took a, a chance on someone like Paul. I thank you for the radical Paul who left behind all that was homeland to him and all that was native culture to him. And though he was a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he became all things to all men so that he might by all means reach some. All that he could. Lord, if that spirit would be kindled in us, if people would wonder about us, who are these so-called Christians, these so-called followers of Christ, and what are they up to? And Lord, that they would look at us and not simply say, not just write us off as another tribe, but see us as a tribe of tribes, as people who care about, more about others than we care about ourselves, that will do anything because we are so captivated by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Barnabas, we see evidence of it everywhere. We have to tell the story that we will remain true to our faith, and being true to our faith means we have to reveal it. We have to give it away. We thank you for your call on us as we read your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen.